Before we get into the book of Hebrews, just a little note here. Sometimes we say things that we later regret that we say. I've done it many times. You've done it, especially when we get in the pulpit, when we're teaching or whatever. That sometimes happens. And hopefully we have sensitive consciences, those that speak. And my brother Pat is one that does. <laughs> and Pat, uh, the day after, last Sunday, uh, wrote me an email or a text, I can't remember, saying he just didn't feel right about the way things came out. So I'm going to let him speak for himself, oh, yeah. just real briefly, yeah, and then we'll get into Hebrews. When we get, I get overly playful sometimes. I think the stupid discussion went way too far last week. And, at, you know, I set the tone for that, and I shouldn't have, so... Thanks for letting me be a little playful at times, but that was just—it was just over the top. It just didn't, you know, my my sense of who I am. Uh, you know, my wife. I wish she would have said what she wanted to say. She was going to say last week. You know, you can say anything to anyone. It all depends on how you say it. You know, and so she's she's much more in tune with that than I am. So just, you know, forgive my silliness with that and just take what's good from it. But. There are things about me you'll never understand, <laughs> and that's all right. But one of them isn't that. So I, I just wanted to I just wanted to set the record straight on that. That that uh, not only have I never sort of like done that kind of thing, what I probably was expressing was more my sense of frustration with people that we all feel. But the apologist in me would never go that way, really, like sort of in real life. So. I don't want to set a bad example. Well, I already set a bad example, but just ignore the example and move on. <laughs> well, we got it recorded, so you've rectified the, the wrong. Um, and appreciate the conscience that you have, brother, and your sensitivity to ministry and um, representing the Lord. And anytime anyone like myself, I'm guilty of this, uh, or I should say this is kind of me, I'm more of an extemporaneous type of preacher than a note preacher. Mm. You know, when you have notes or a manuscript and you read it, you're safe. You know exactly what you're going to say and how it's going to come out. But when you just have skeleton-type notes and you leave a lot to, like, fill in the blanks, that can sometimes go off off in the wrong end. So, Pat's a very gifted teacher and preacher um, and eloquent brother, so uh, he doesn't need a whole lot of notes. And he can throw a lot of things in there that... Uh, Anybody like him or me, we can say things that we later say, oh, I wish I didn't say that. Well, anyway, here we are. New se- total new series now. We're in the book of Hebrews. Amen. Has anybody ever read the book of Hebrews? Raise their hand. Yeah, amen. amen to that. I visited somebody recently and I was trying to encourage this young believer about the reading of the Word. And I asked this young believer, you know, what they were reading in the Word. And, um, and it turned out that the person said... Matthew and Peter are my favorite books. I said, well, do you read any... What other books do you read? And she said, well, those are my two favorite books. I always go to those two books. Now, this person's only saved just in the last... Within the last year. But I'm thinking, oh, boy. If someone just limits themselves to just two books of the Bible, I think we all feel like, whoa. It's sort of like walking... Do you ever have this experience where... You have uh, visited a, a, a tour site, you've gone to uh, a vacation land, or you've gone to a museum or some exhibit, and uh, someone else goes there too sometime later, and you say to them, oh, by the way, when you were there, did you, did you go into such and such and see that? And they go, oh, no, no, I, I never got there. Well, what about this? Did you get to that? Didn't, and, and you feel like, wow, you didn't get the full experience of what you could have if you had gone there and seen this or seen that. Well, it's the same thing with the Word. Uh, if we don't 
if we don't get into the whole of the word, we're going to miss out so much. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is God's, you could say, exhibition to us. This is his display mm-hmm. of, of what's in his heart and what we need to know. So that there's nothing in the scriptures that is inconsequential and without value for us. Though we may play down the importance of certain books, give me an example of a book that you might tend to want to shy away from, or you've read the least, or you comprehend the least. Chronicles. Chronicles. First Chronicles. First ten or eleven chapters of just so and so name after name after name genealogy. Give me another book. Which one? The book of Numbers. That's another book with a lot of different names, a lot of details of travel points and so on. Anything else? Revelation. Revelation could be too, although sometimes it's, the pendulum swings the other way. People get so consumed with Revelation that they <coughs> they only read Revelation. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, you got you got the gist of it. I would say another big book that often is neglected is the book that begins with the letter L. Leviticus. Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus has been classified as being the priest guidebook, the priest mm-hmm. guidebook. So. Malachi, the minor prophets are often neglected too. And that's why I think it's important to have a daily Bible reading that puts you through the Bible. Whether it's done in a year or two years or three years, you can read at the pace you want to. But I think it's important. It is important. Scripture says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So there's nothing in Scripture that's unprofitable. So that's a little bit of an introduction to getting into the book of Hebrews. And... One of the reasons why I think the book of Hebrews is neglected uh, is because people don't know their Old Testament. And what books do you think in the Old Testament would be significant to understanding the book of Hebrews most, Greg? Isaiah. Isaiah. Wow. Is that a wild guess? Or no, I just kind of like think it, I think it is. Is there anything in Isaiah? Is it a wild guess, though? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you were saying that tongue-in-cheek or what. I, I think I was, man. Okay. I didn't think it through. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm glad you participated today. Um, is there any? Barbara? Genesis and Exodus. Good. What other book? I'd say all of them because um, it's the process of revealing seven stage for Christ. Right. Certainly, that, that's obviously a historic background for the book of Hebrews, but I, I agree that I, I would say the two most important books would be Exodus and Leviticus. Um, a key. Uh, numbers as well, because Numbers is giving you the, the travels through the wilderness. Genesis chapter, I mean, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Israel traveling through the wilderness to the promised land to get to a place of rest. They didn't have rest in the wilderness. So the whole thing about the Sabbath has a reflection back to the travels of Israel through the wilderness. There was no rest. So it's important to understand the picture of the wilderness journeys of Israel. But probably the most important thing would be the book of Leviticus, the priest's guidebook, because of what? It contains so much information about offerings, mm-hmm. sacrifices. Name the different kinds of offerings there are in the book of Leviticus or in general in the Old Testament. Drink offerings. Drink uh, offerings. Offering. Offering. What else? Faith. Faith? No, no, no. Faith offerings. What? Trespass offerings. Trespass offerings. Wave offerings. Wave offerings. Good. Meal offerings. Someone said drink offerings. Uh, peace offering, uh, wood offering. Anything else? 
Which one? Well, that's part of the, the offering, a savor unto God. But all of those things become background information that sort of lays the pattern down for us to understand the book of Hebrews. What three characters in the Old Testament do you think play the most important part in the book of, in the book of Hebrews? There's three specific. Right there, Barry? Jo- Joshua? Okay. He wasn't one I thought of. He's certainly important. Melchizedek. Thank you. Probably, well, that's up there in the top three, definitely. Who else? Two other very important characters. Moses. Moses and... Well, Aaron, thank you. Melchizedek, Aaron, good, the high priesthood. And one more would be Abraham. So Abraham, Moses, and Aaron, or Melchizedek, and what you have there, you have <clears throat> with, um, with Moses, you have a king-type individual. Mm-hmm. With Abraham, you have a prophet-type individual. And of course, with Melchizedek or Aaron, you have a priest-like or a priest character represented. So in all of those three characters, we find... In Jesus, a true, final, fulfilled king, priest, and prophet, Mm -hmm. as the book of Hebrews will bring out to us. (coughs) The book of Hebrews is unique to the canon of the New Testament. There's no other book like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Corinthians and Thessalonians, Paul's writings, corpus of literature, when you put all of them together, how many books of... Paul was written in the New Testament. I'm not sure. You don't let your son know? How about 14? Close. It's debatable. 13, oh, 13 in, in Hebrews, if it's Paul, would be the 14th. So very good. He went to Bible school, by the way. In case anybody didn't know that, if you have any questions about the Bible, Greg could probably help you. He's a, he graduated uh, cum laude. Cum laude but <laughs> so. Okay. Um, unique. One, and we'll talk about the authorship in a second. Um, who would you say is the primary audience in the book of uh, Hebrews? Jewish Christians. Who? Jewish Christians. Jews, yeah, Jewish Christians. Uh, okay, that would be one thing, which is unique. Go ahead, jo- John. The what? They're dispersed. Okay, Jews in diaspora. Peter seems to be addressing them, doesn't he, as well? Those in Pontus, Cappadocia. He mentions various locations. And Peter seems to lean heavily in his epistle to a Jewish audience as well. But in Hebrews, you have for sure the most Judaistic-like Christian book of them all. James, of course, has a lot of Hebrew overtones in it as well with Judaistic background information or material that's there as well. But obviously, the book of Hebrews contains the most. And there's obviously an intelligent audience of Jews, which is... Normal, there would hardly have been any Jews that weren't intelligent because that was their lifestyle. From a child, they grew up, like Paul says to Timothy, of Timothy, that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. So they have still today uh, different nationalities for that matter. They would have like Hebrew school where they're teaching the children the language and they would be teaching them at the same time, depending on what brand of... Uh, denomination of the, the Jews would be in, but they would be teaching them the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 
And oftentimes, a lot of that is memorization work that's done. And in days when they didn't have the Bible accessible to individual people like we do today, which is an amazing privilege that we can carry a library with us. This is God's Word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That, That was not known. There was no such thing in all of the Bible eras of time Old or New Testament where any one person had the whole of the canon in one volume like we do one, one corpus of literature uh, so it's a, tr- it's a tremendous gift that we have now that all of these books have been collated, collated and that they have been put in now one volume for us to be able to utilize so that's one of the uniqueness of the book of Hebrews is that it's a Judaistic audience Seems to be a general Judaistic audience. Um, uh, where would they have been located? Interesting that he would suggest that, because most people would think the Book of Hebrews, because it has so many references to to the offerings and to the tabernacle, into the system of uh, the Levitical order of things that it would probably be written to people in Jerusalem, Jews of Jerusalem, or at least Judea, or the land of Israel. But the likelihood from chapter 10, it indicates that you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, indicates that there was a time that these people, specifically, as being addressed, had gone through a time of tribulation, of, of persecution, where they were losing their their goods, their, their homes were being ransacked. And this could be probably traced back to the era of Nero in Rome. So one of the possibilities is that the audience that's being addressed would be Jews in Rome under persecution. <clears throat> now the time uh, of the book of Hebrews, because there's so many references to temple-like services the priests' functions, the offerings, the being in the camp, lots of that kind of language, Zion and so on, the strong likelihood is that the book of Hebrews is written before the destruction of the temple. Because after the destruction of the temple, the priests were out of business. There was no, no more purposes for them to function because everything revolved around the, the temple. And if the temple's destroyed... It's really like a stab in the heart to Judaism. The whole system now has lost its character and lost its functional capacity because it was the center of Judaism. And so to be without it would have been taking the soul out of the body. How can Judaism exist without the temple, without all that activity? It really can't. That's why there's... They're, they're, that's why there's books like the Mishnah in Talmud that have been written, which are rabbinic writings to give Jews instructions on how to really function without a temple. Mm-hmm. A lot of the instructions of the oral traditions of rabbis to, to this day, uh, the different uh, branches of uh, rabbinic schools have their own interpretations <coughs> of how Jews are to function in, in our current time period or the time period after the temple. That's when uh, rabbinic Judaism really became a reality because the Jews were like, well, what do we do? You know, 
Do we become atheists now? Or do we do we turn our backs on God? What, how, how do we function as as the people of God, as the chosen people of God, so-called? Um, the answers were now put into the hands of the rabbis who produced writings that became sort of like marching orders for those that were left of Judaism. Go ahead. So is, is modern Judaism legitimate? I mean, it seems to me that, well, the Bible says that there's a new covenant and Christianity sort of took over, so that tells me that Judaism is sort of illegitimate, if I can use that properly. Well, you could say that it's antiquated. It's been um, dissolved. Not dissolved would be the wrong word. It has been displaced with uh, the evolution of redemptive history. And the way I like to put it is that Judaism has blossomed into Christianity. Okay? In some of the, you could say, sort of like a, you know, a, a caterpillar. Uh, you know, there's an evolution and it starts off this and then it evolves into a butterfly and so this is how God moved history along the first giving types and shadows and then it eventually comes to the fullness of time when these things reach their culmination of expectation and that's one of the points of the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate to the audience that look at you can't hang around in Judaism anymore we have a high priest. Mm-hmm. We have a prophet. We have a Melchizedek king priest who's ministering to us in another tabernacle, on another mountain, with another covenant. It's a better land. It's a better promise. We have a better hope. Look at Abraham was in the land and he was looking for a city which has... That wasn't it. Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land of promise and they still didn't enter into His rest. But now we, in Christ, have our rest. Go ahead, Wally. Yes, I'm just curious. How do the Jews today view Melchizedek? That's a good question. I'm not sure how they would view Melchizedek. Uh, viewing, going back to the Aaron. What difference would it make? I'm not quite sure what their interpretation of Melchizedek would mean for Judaism. Well, what, what I'm saying is, you think so as a Christian but they don't think so they think Judaism is just on hold until the Messiah comes so things are stalled right at the moment 2,000 years have gone by they're still waiting with expectation the fact that they're back in the land that has risen to the temperature very high for them with expectations they since 67 now have come very close to occupying all of Jerusalem in that east side where the Temple Mount is, which is still under Muslim control, you could say there is expectations. They're digging under, underneath that mount. They're looking for artifacts and so on. But they're not all Jews, of course. The secular Jews could care less about about you know Judaism. Really, they they want to have a functioning government like a great America and have free enterprise and they want to have freedom of speech and whatever, whatever. So let's not, we, we have to be very careful. There's a, just a minority of Jewish people and there are about 14 million of them on earth right now. 
um, that uh, a fraction of them, maybe a tenth or so, maybe up to 20% of them might be religious. But the vast majority of them are very secular and have a remote uh, connection to Judaism. And uh, that might, you can check that statement out, but for the most part, uh, I think as Christians sometimes we're a little naive about Jews and we think that the Jews are just, you know, they're reading their Torah daily and they're <laughs> praying to Yahweh. It's not like that at all. You know, I think it's almost like a, a, a lapsed Catholic or a, 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 a cradle Catholic that might go to a Christmas service. The Jews would go to the temple on, you know, Yom Kippur possibly or there's a Jew can speak on that. Go ahead, Sister Barbara. It's interesting that uh, most of them will, will follow all the holidays and all the traditions, like, uh, like, like so-called Christians will go to church on Easter and Christmas, but the rest of the time, you would not know that Right, right. It's very shallow and hollow for them. Pat? Well, I, I think a lot of it is attributed to dispensational teaching. I think that's why so many in the church still have this view of Judaism is you know that they're all practicing this faithful devotion to Yahweh when in fact very good. Right. But I think dispensationalism is to blame. Right. Um, that's a whole big subject then when we talk about Christian Zionism mm. and the ways in which Christians <laughs> want to support Jews, devout Jews <laughs> who want to go back who are in the land, who want to rebuild the temple, who are waiting for the Messiah, who they actually are lending all kinds of money and help and support for the building of the temple. Ironically, you know, that's like saying, hey, we're going to go from third base back to first base or home plate. We're going to start all over again. When God says, hello, we've already gone that route. You know, we, we, we've made the circle here. We've come to the to the fullness of time. It's completed in Christ. You know, we need to point them to Jesus, not to a temple. It's misleading. And ironically, from a dispensational standpoint, that temple is only going to stand for seven years. It's going to be destroyed at the end of their seven-year tribulation. And then the Ezekielian temple is supposed to be built, which is called the Millennial Temple. And, and I, I, I could go into a lot of details on that, but I won't. But it, when you think of it, they're, setting, they're, they're hoping and praying. Christians, Zionist Christians, are hoping that the Jews can get... get, get what, are they waiting for the Messiah? What's he going to do? I've asked the Jews when I've been to Israel, I said to these rabbis, I said, are you expecting the Messiah to come and build the temple or will you build the temple for the coming of the Messiah? And you'll get a mixed response. It's a good question to ask them because there's a lot of confusion on that. The other question to ask is, who is going to be the high priest that's going to operate in the temple if it is constructed? Which there's so many different factions of Jews. That's another thing we don't understand. Even among those so-called, the, the serious ones, the orthodox and Hasidic ones, there's sex among them. So they each have their own sort of messianic figure expectation that is, there's not a unity, in other words, of thought in that. But i got to get back to the, go ahead, I was April. I just going to say, did they keep some record of, like, the tribes, like, who the Levites, that would they Did they? Well, I think they've got, I think they believe they've got lineage, uh, where they can connect themselves back to the original tribes, which I think is previous and past. Yeah, you know, all records of genealogies were destroyed when the temple in the city of Jerusalem was burnt. Yeah. And that's where the pedigree of, of Judaism, of Jews, was kept 
like the city hall, you could say, that has birth certificates and birth records. Those were all destroyed when the temple was destroyed. Now they claim that through DNA evidence, there's a lawyer right there, DNA evidence, you can sort of trace the uh, genealogical uh, connection that a person would have to their nationality. I don't know enough about DNA stuff, and I don't know how... Uh, it works, but I know my children have done it to try to find out how much of this, how much of that. Are they Spanish, Indian, French, English, Albanian, whatever? You know, I don't know how, how, how that can be demonstrated. Maybe somebody who knows more can fill us in on uh, elite nurses over here probably have the insights on that. we question them on the side. Okay, I must move on now. My assignment is... Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And I'm, one, I'm the first speaker in a series of uh, uh, studies through the book of Hebrews. And I think uh, Todd is next week. And then, I don't know, Barry's coming, Randy's coming. There's different ones that will be participating in this. And I think it's important for us that we finish uh, what we're supposed to say on the day we say yeah. it rather than dragging it out. So I'm almost getting guilty of that already. Um, <laughs> The word covenant, by the way, appears 16 times in the book of Hebrews, which is another indication of uh, the type of book that it is. Um, The word blood is 22 times. You don't find any other book in the Bible that has references like this, to covenant, to blood, this frequent of a time. Uh, This frequency of time. Whoa, what is that all about? Are you kidding me? I'm a pastor. <laughs> That's Roy. Um, uh, what is he thinking? Okay. Um, the Old Testament, as Augustine says, the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, and the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. Well, the book of Hebrews is a perfect example of that, where the Old Testament is. Uh, the New Testament is concealed in it and the Old Testament is revealed in it. That's why you have such a close connection. And the book of Hebrews contains 38 Old Testament references. And there are, of course, references to the priesthood, to the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system begins to be uh, described for us when the Lord gives instructions to Moses, when he tells them, make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. There's unique phrases in it, like outside the camp, or we've come to Mount Zion. Those obviously have um, relevance for those Jews who had understanding of their Old Testament Scripture. Okay, let's look at the first opening verses of the book of Hebrews. And what other book begins the way the book of Hebrews does? None. It has a character unique to itself. And you cannot think of a more august way of opening a book than the word God. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Right here... The first word, and I think all your translations should have. Yours doesn't? Well, how does yours say it? Long ago. Okay. Okay. It could be. It could be translated short that way. Um, I don't have a manuscript, the, the Greek in front of me, but my guess would be that the word theos is right there as the first word. But the, the point of it is to draw attention 
to God at the outset. Um, when you think of it, really, every book could be said to be from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's how Paul opens up his epistles, which is one of the reasons why we question the authorship of Paul uh, to the book of Hebrews. We would like to think that he would be because of why. Why would Paul be a possible candidate as the author? Such a scholar. He was a Jew. He was a Jew. He was Jewish. That's one. He was such a scholar. He was a brilliant. Knew Judaism thoroughly. Prolific writer. Terrific writer. One of the reasons. Uh, one of the reasons why not Paul, being the author, is remember Jesus sent him to be a minister of the Gentiles. Peter sent to the circumcised. He sent to the uncircumcised. Paul describes himself as an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it would be out of character for Paul, whose ministry thrust was Gentile-oriented, to write an epistle of this length and being a part of the canon, of course, to the Jews. That's one thing. The other thing is the way the epistle begins. Paul begins every epistle, unlike the book of Hebrews does. There's no, no similarities whatsoever in the introduction. Writing to the brothers and sisters called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ or called by God or Paul an apostle by the will of God. No reference whatsoever in his introduction. The different names suggested who, who, who the author could be. But since the Scriptures doesn't tell us who it is, we're better off just saying it's an inspired epistle from the Lord. As a matter of fact, because of uh, its uniqueness, the uh, early church fathers, in trying to establish a canon of the, of, of the, of the New Testament, had a, had a long delay in adopting the book of Hebrews as being a canonical book. You know what I mean by canonical, Kelly? Right. Can simply means rule, and we use the word canon to understand books that would be classified as sacred, as inspired by God, and having a character that is unique to itself and has no uh, human uh, origin to its, to its authorship. It's, it's, it, it, it's from the Lord, though human authors are employed, but it's a divine, divinely inspired book. So yes, that's another a very good point, Wally, that the, uh, the style of writing, and on top of the style of writing, is the subject material of the book of Hebrews. Where else, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, do you read about a high priest? I suppose Revelation but in none of the epistles to the churches, certainly in none of Paul's epistles, does he address the subject of the priesthood of Christ, the whole sacrifice, all of the things that are addressed in Hebrews, Paul stays away from. As a matter of fact, the word church, I'd have to think about it maybe once. I'm thinking off the top of my head now. Would the word church be used in all 13, of all the 13 chapters? So, 
Whereas Paul's writing is all about the church, Christ being the head, we being the body, we being members one of another. So the themes that Paul addresses in his epistles are not found in the book of Hebrews. And another key reason why the book is not written by Paul is found in the second chapter when it says that uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord what does it say right after that? And was confirmed unto us by them who heard Him. Paul would never classify himself as a second-hand witness. Paul said, what I have received of the Lord that delivered I unto you. So the the author of Hebrews is someone who has been informed by the eyewitnesses in Paul, a, a classified apostle who had seen the Lord, though post-resurrection ascension, he has still seen Him. And because of that seeing Him, he gains that classification of being an apostle. So he was not a second-hand informant who got information from Peter or John or any of the other apostles, he would have received it directly. So, that, that's kind of neither here nor there to tell you the truth, but just so that we don't try to force Pauline thinking into the book of Hebrews, it's best for us to not uh, ascribe Pauline authorship to the book of Hebrews. Because I think we would be wrong in trying to cross-breed Paul's writings with the book of Hebrews. Now, let's look at these verses here. God or had spoken in different ways and in different times in the past by the prophets. Let me stop there. God even spoke by way of a donkey. He spoke by way of angels. He spoke through multitudes of prophets in different ways at different times, different places. You think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, I mean, all of Jonah, all of these different prophets who had spoken at different times over the course of Israel's history in different places, some in the northern kingdom, some in the southern kingdom, who spoke on different subjects that applied to people at certain times. And those prophets were worth hearing because they were sent by God. It says in the book of Jeremiah, I have not sent these prophets, yet they prophesied. But these are one whom God has sent. And if the Lord sends a prophet, the people are expected to hear the, the, the words that the prophet is speaking because he's not speaking for himself. And that's why we find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic writings, we have the expression, the Lord saith, the Lord saith. The Lord saith. So when a prophet was speaking, he was speaking, you could say, uh, what's the word they use for the Pope when he speaks infallibly? Ex cathedra? What's the word? Ex cathedra. When the, when, when the Pope would say something that is infallible, it can't be questioned, it's absolute. Well, this is how the prophets spoke. The prophets, they were the ones truly sent of God by the Spirit in their words to be accepted. But they were men, mere men, and they had plenty of flaws. 
And that comes out throughout the Old Testament. Look at Jonah sleeping in the boat, going in the wrong direction, and yet, you know, uh, he was, he was a, a tool of God. Look at Samson. He's, he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, um, had a problem with women. David with his flaws. Solomon. I mean, we could go through the whole of the Bible, and these were, these were God's, God's spokespersons. These were God's people who he utilized. But now we have a voice that's being spoken that is incomparable to any of the past. He has spoken in the past by these various individuals at various times and in various ways, but now He has spoken unto us in... Your translation, the word I believe is N in the Greek, which is our translation. He has spoken in the Son. In the Son. That's, that's an amazing uh, expression to describe the, uh, the value of the words of Christ because of who was in Him. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. God at different times has spoken in His Son. When? In the last days. The last days began when? When the Son arrived on the scene. We think of the last days as our days or when the 20th century began or when the Pentecostals had their movement in Azusa Street or uh, Topeka, Kansas or something like that. We often think of them as, oh, this is the last days and God's pouring out. He poured out His Spirit in Acts chapter 2 according to Peter and that is the beginning of the last days. It has to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus. He has um, come to finalize the Old Testament but to initiate or inaugurate would be a better word, the New Testament or the New Covenant era. So, it's significant that the author of Hebrews sets the, sets the, uh, the stage correctly by immediately drawing their attention to what God has done in sending His Son and His Son being the spokesperson for God. What kind of a person is this son who is sent by God that would be God the Father of course he is said to be in the verse 3 says he's in the brightness in any translations will be better here who being the brightness of his glory in the exact impression of his person exact Impression. You may look like your mother or your father. You may sound like them. You may have characteristics like your parent, but you're not your parent. (laughs) But Jesus is described with such proximity to God that it's described as being the exact. And I can't underscore that word enough. The exact impression of the sun. And it has to do really with, with, with taking a, <clears throat> like a tattoo or a stamp and you stamp it onto something. So what you see there is the exact reflection of what the stamp was. Mm-hmm. So the father's stamp was on the sun. So when you see the sun, you see the father. And this is, is who God has spoken to us by. And that right away should say, oh boy, we better listen to this. No one ever spoke like this man, they said about Jesus, right? He speaks with authority, not like the scribes. 
They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. What, what it must have been like to hear Jesus talk and to speak. And, and for him to say, if you've seen me, you've seen him that sent me. I and the Father are one. What a visitation we've had. The divine has come to earth. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is He who was supposed to be sent and coming. It's Him. And when He was baptized, the Spirit, like a dove, descended upon Him and the voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son. What else? With I am well pleased. Yeah. There's another, another little expression that's used there for the amount of transfiguration where the Father says, Right, Gary? Yeah, hear ye Him. Hear Him. That's what the book of Hebrews is trying to say. Hold it, folks. God spoke, and He spoke by angels. I forget to mention angels spoke many, many times in the Old Testament. Uh, he spoke through these uh, mighty prophets, kings, and priests who were to teach knowledge. The lips of the priests were to teach knowledge. The prophets were prophesying from heaven. The, the priests were interceding on the behalf of the people. <clears throat> they were encompassed about with tremendous resources, but now <clears throat> that all fades out into insignificance in a sense in that now the full picture has come. The one who they spoke of is now on the scene. God has spoken to us in these last days in His Son. There's not a character higher than Christ that could have spoken. By the way, if you have any questions or comments, Please raise your hand. I'm not, I don't want to get into a, too much of a preaching mode here. Uh, I could. I love the book of Hebrews. It is my favorite book with Acts being a close second. That's just my own personal preference. So God has spoken in different ways at different times in the past unto the fathers through the prophets, but has in these last days spoken unto us by His or in His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things. Now, he'll get into that in the second chapter when it says, we don't see yet all things put unto him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory. We saw him who, who passed by angels to come to earth, made himself a little lower than the angels <clears throat> so that he could perform the work that the Father had sent him to do to be a sacrifice for sinners such as we and then become a high priest for them so that we would be able to have someone who succors us, who comes to our aid. And that was something that was in a desperate need of the Israelites was to have a high priest who could intercede for them, who had compassion on them, who were out of the way, who needed the sympathy and empathy. And if Judaism is dead and gone... Now what do we have? Hold on, we got a great high priest. Go ahead. Why, why would being an heir and inherent inheritance? Why would that be significant to a Jew? Yeah, at this point, well, I, I think the whole Old Testament and the Bible in general is always kind of pointing us forward. I mean, even now we we here we have no continuing city. We're looking for one to come. Chapter 13, verse 14 of Hebrews, uh, uh, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. For the hope that is in you of what being changed and become like Him. Um, 
It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall... So, uh, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. So, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not all here. From the worldly standpoint, and children of the world, as it says in Hebrews 11 and 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation shall perish. In the hope of unjust men perishes. Think of it. Your unsaved loved ones, your neighbors, your friends, or whatever. What are they living for? Was it John Lennon living for today? Who was that? Or George Harrison? Who was it? Okay, one of those Beatles. You know, living for this world. Imagine there's no heaven, blue skies above. Imagine all the people living for today. Living for this world. But for us who are believers... That's why, oh, death, where is your sting? Death only is an escort for us. It takes us to be with Christ, which is far better. So the point I'm trying to bring out, getting to Pat's question is, you know, why mention the heir of all things? Well, that's going to be brought up throughout the epistle about the future. The Jews didn't climax their journeys when they got into the land. They did, that wasn't the full, full rest. God spoke of another day, another rest. And I do think that there's a rest now, but I still think that's an incomplete rest Mm -hmm. in comparison to the glorious future rest that we will have when the Lord Jesus returns. So, heir of all things, that's that's the climax of it all. When God will be all in all. Go ahead, brother. Well, that's why Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 enter into play. And we'll talk about that next week anyway. That's, that's the crux of the beginning of Hebrews. Absolutely. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So good. They set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. The world and, and the Lord are at enmity with one another. That's why we're told to be not the friends, have no friendship with this world, because the world is at enmity with God. But Christ will bring all things into subjection unto Himself. So that's really the, you could say, the ultimate end of what, what Judaism was looking forward down the line for the days when they would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And that's all going to be culminated under the headship of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says, "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person in upholding all things by the word of His power." Upholding all things by the all things by him all things consist. It tells us in Colossians, in he made all things. Uh, go ahead, Randy. Amen. Um, what what power uh, he has? Uh, surely upholding all things by the word of his power. Is that how your translation reads? Does it have upholding there? I'm reading the King James language. Huh? Sustain? Sustain, yeah. What is that? Upholds the universe. Upholds the universe. You know, that's a great verse to just say, guess who's in control? If we have any doubt about it, look that verse right up. He upholds all things. You know, Doreen loves to sing this song with her nursing home patients. Go ahead, Doreen. Do you want to sing it for us? Well, your voice is not up to snuff. No, go ahead. Huh? 
No. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the he's got the little bitty baby in his. He's got you and me, brother. He's got everybody. Everything is in his hands. It's so true. That was probably a '50s song, right? I guess um, they had, they had some better knowledge about the God of the of the universe than they do today. Oh, 58. Well, beautiful. What what month? We don't need to know that information. But it is so true. He's got every, he, if he upholds all things to the utmost by his power, his authority. We shouldn't think that anything's out of his control. Then, even what happens to us, it's a hard, it's hard when it does happen to to me, and we think like, oh, why me? Why now? Why this? I can't. Um, my neighbor across the street, the poor guy, he had a he had both hip uh, operations, you know, hip replacements. He'd had them for a few years. One of them for the last six. And it snapped on him the other day. They had a big cookout planned that next day with all of his family. They have a vacation planned in a few weeks to go up to New Hampshire with all of his kids and grandkids. And, and this thing's happened, you know. Uh, he's a devout Catholic. And um, he took it well. But him and his wife said it couldn't have happened at a worse time. Well, even that God has his time, doesn't he? And there's reasons for it that may escape us but are certainly known to God. So this is, a, the, the, this is where I got to wind down right here. When he had, through himself, purged or made purification for our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's amazing. That the priest became the offering and that the offering becomes the priest. Jesus, as a priest, offered himself on the altar of the cross. And after the offering is accepted, now he's lifted in his ascension to the right hand of God to be a merciful and faithful high priest. So you could put it this way. As an ironic priest, he provided the victim, which was himself the offering for sin, and now in his ascension, when the Father gives him the right hand, he now gains the office of Melchizedek, priest. I think I may have mentioned this before, and I'll have to use this in closing, but um, Tom Schreiner, who's a well-known professor and author, and he spoke on the book of Hebrews. Uh, Pat and I went to the conference with, uh, uh, who else? Just us two, and, and Mo was up there. Um, Great, great lectures that were given by both of the speakers, but Shrine has written a wonderful commentary, I'm sure, on the book of Hebrews. And he said, I don't know if you remember this, but he said, this is how I would characterize the theme of the book of Hebrews. And he said it very simple. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. And I said, Amen. That's so true. It, it, it's been called the epistle of warning. Because if Christ is the final revelation of God in the last days, why would we want to go back? If we do, there's no more offerings for sin. Those sins can't... The blood of bulls and goats, they don't take away sin. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sin, forever sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, in my thinking of the book of Hebrews, I would just add this little caveat to what Brother Shriner said when he said, I would classify the book as don't go back. And I would just add this little line. Don't go back. 
Because we've got a great high priest in heaven. That's why we don't have to go back. We've got an anchor for our soul that secures us. Who keeps us. Who, who lives for us. Who prays for us. Who intercedes for us. So why go back? That whole thing about going back all goes back to the imagery of the book of Numbers. When the children of Israel were going through the wilderness and they came up against temptations and trials and all kinds of difficulties, what did they want to do? They want to go back, you know, like, like Lot's wife, you know. Egypt, a lot more appealing. They had, we, we had graves there that we could be buried in. There was better food, you know, the, the onions and the leeks and the melons. We had flesh pots. We had delicacies there. What are we doing out in the dry desert? We don't know where we're going. They're confused. They're, they're, they're angry. They're bitter. They're tired. They're weary. Uh, thirsty. So you want to go back. So the book of Hebrews is saying, you have taken joyfully the spoiling of your goods, but don't go back. But go forward and look ahead for, for what's ahead for you. we got a high priest who's in heaven. Our soul is anchored to Him. And we're going to be with Him forever. And we're going to be with Him in the new city. Here we have no abiding city. That's Hebrews 13, verse 14. Let us therefore go forth unto Him without the camp. What's the camp? Judaism. Judaism is left behind like a snake leaving their old skin behind and now they're in a new, new skin. And that's what we as believers are. We, we, granted, we, we come onto the the labor field late, late in the pro, in the program, but what wonderful things we inherit! Uh, and if anyone thought of, and this is why I have a hard time with Messianic Judaism personally. I just don't see it. I, I just think it, it's almost like uh, kind of wanting to go back to Egypt in a way, and, and going back to Judaism to me is going in the wrong direction. <clears throat> even though I understand the type and anti-type, but let's value. The, Amen. the anti-type, Amen. the final type, and, and not have to go back. Yeah, we can make, make reference to it, but let's not send the wrong message, I think, to audiences that want to almost blend the two together. They're not blendable. They're, one's passed on to the other. The baton to the runner has been taken, and now that runner's dropped out of the race. Amen. Okay, so the one that's going to finish the course is the one that has the baton. And that's what Christianity is. Amen. It's going to finish the race. Kind of antagonistic to the new man theology of understanding what it means to be regenerated in the new man of Christ. Hallelujah. So good. So true. Okay, it's just about 10.30. April, you want to close us in prayer, Sisterness? Heavenly Father, it's good to 